please stand for the reading of God's word. Philippians 2, 1-11. Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in the Spirit and of one mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Uh, Last quick question for you. I'm sitting over here. I'm I'm watching Leslie Reed. I'm looking over here at two big-time Philadelphia fans, and I noticed your American flag. Was that a Patriots uh, acknowledgement? It's an American patriot. Okay. Okay. Because we're talking about unity today, and I I just feel like we're two steps back so far. So someone's going to be very sad by the end of the day. (laughs) Maybe you should ask yourself that question. Well, we are in the middle of this uh, series through Paul's letter to the Philippians. And I've been suggesting that uh, in this letter, Paul is painting a picture for us and for the Philippines, of course, of what it means to live the Jesus life. What does it mean to live not a life of religion or just tradition, but what does it mean to live life with a person? The person, the Nazarene, the carpenter from Nazareth, crucified, raised, now Lord of the universe. What does life with him look like? knowing him, walking in his ways. We get a great picture of that. And today, it's not your fault. Uh, today, uh, we come to you know, one of the, the great passages in all of scripture. And it's actually the passage I used for my Christmas sermon just a month ago. Um, so I, I'm going to try not to cover the same ground. Uh, a month ago, I really focused on these great descriptions of Jesus in verse 6 through 11. Uh, this picture of him leaving heaven in the incarnation at Christmas. And then, of, of course, the, the, the crucifixion at, at Easter. And so... Uh, we, we spent a lot of time looking at that. So today what I want to do is put his example in the larger context of what Paul is encouraging the Philippians and us today towards. So we'll, we'll have a slightly different emphasis. And Paul's burden in this passage, as you've already heard this morning, is this burden for unity in the body. We just heard Jesus' prayer. 
Um, I don't know if that struck you, but for me, you know, there's only, I think there's only one prayer in the Bible for us specifically. I mean, people are prayed for all the time, but there's one prayer for future believers, and it comes on Jesus' own lips. And as he looks down the passage of time towards future believers, what is on his heart is this prayer that we would be one, that we would be unified, that we would not, we wouldn't agree on every single thing, but that we would, we would engage one another, we'd love each other, we'd serve each other, we would come together as one. And that is uh, the burden that Paul feels in this passage. I think it's safe to assume that he is spending this much time talking about this because there's at least some level of disunity in the Philippian church. We don't have a lot of detail of the church. Uh, we do have, uh, in chapter 4, he mentions one issue that's going on that there's some disunity. Uh, let's see. I always have a hard time with the first slide. Can you get me there? Okay. Uh, chapter 4, verse 2. Um, Paul says this, I plead with Euodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you, some other third party, loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel. So uh, you have these two women that are, that are leaders in this church uh, that love the Lord and apparently there's been some falling out between them. And so Paul is directly addressing them uh, to, to pursue unity. Uh, we can probably assume there's some other levels of disunity in the church. We don't know what they are. Uh, But of course, um, we continue to see disunity in the church all around us. Um, If you've spent any amount of time in a church over the years, uh, you have seen some of the uglier sides of church, some of the squabbles that can happen interpersonally or even in a larger church context and splits and and all these things that that can really uh, disillusion people towards the church. My favorite statement when people complain about the church is I, I say, I totally agree with you. The, the thing I hate about the church is that it's filled with people. And uh, I mean, if we could get rid of the people, church would be easy. You know, it would just work smoothly. It would be great. But the church is filled with people. That's the worst part about the church. And um, so, you know, if you've been in a church, you know that, that these things happen, of course. And Paul's burden here is to call us towards unity. And what he does in this passage, he's, he invites us into the kind of posture that will promote unity, the kind of posture that fil- facilitates unity. So we'll actually talk more, we won't talk so much about unity, but the kind of posture that we're being invited into that will help with unity. Uh, so three things I want to do. First, we'll talk about a, a posture he calls us out of that doesn't promote unity. And then he invites us into this posture, secondly, that does promote unity. And, and then thirdly, he gives us some great motivation for why we ought to live this way. So let's start with um, what Paul is calling us out of. And you see it uh, in verse 3. Oh, let me, let me start at verse 2. Verse 2 is the main command of this passage. Take a look at verse 2, this call for unity. Make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Okay, that's the overall command. And then he invites us into a posture to help us find that unity. Here it it is. This is the posture he calls us out of. Verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. And we've talked quite a bit about these words over the months. But that last word, vain conceit, the word in the Greek is literally... Empty glory. Do nothing out of empty glory. Uh, if you were here last week, Todd Pickett taught on our search for glory. He talked about this, this, this search, this hunger we have within us for, for something great and beautiful and significant. And that's actually a good search. And that search is to find its fulfillment in the glory of God. 
in seeing the goodness and greatness of God. That, that search for glory is a good thing. Here, Paul is addressing the kind of glory that is turned inward on itself. And is seeking simply its own greatness. In ways that are, are empty, or ways that are, are vain, he would say. But he's tapping into the craving of every human heart. The craving for, for greatness, for recognition, um, for to be seen by others. To be seen as, man, that person is special. That person is, is extraordinary. That person is unique. That person is incredible, whatever it may be. But we do that in ways that are vain. It's vain glory. And I thought about a, a helpful metaphor, I think, that kind of encapsulates this posture. So about 10 years ago, 2009, um, Facebook introduced something to its platform that I think was brilliant as a marketing strategy. But they introduced a, a simple button into the Facebook uh, platform, and you know what the button is, right? It's the like and if you're not on Facebook, people will post pictures, right, of themselves or their family or things they've done, or they can post quotes or anything they want. They might want to say something, and people can look at that, and with a single push of a button, they can say, like, I'm impressed. I like that. Thumbs up to uh, what you've said. And it's, it's an approval button, essentially. Brilliant marketing strategy, really dangerous for the human heart, <laughs> I would suggest. But any of you on Facebook, we, we know what it's like to post something and then to wait, Let's see what happens, right? And come back to it to a day later. 25 likes. Ooh, I had 25 likes. 37 likes. 112 likes. Well, we can actually quantify our approval rating of a, of a particular post. We can even like our own post to kind of bump the stats a little bit. <laughs> this happens. I see this happen. But it, it, it is, it, it's actually, it's a simple thing. And of course, in some ways, it's, I'm kind of playing with it. But it's actually, a, it's a pretty good metaphor for life, the like button. <laughs> that we, we go around our lives, not just on Facebook, but in our daily lives, living our lives, trying to interact with people in all these ways saying, see me, notice me, like me, be impressed with me. And we all go, af- go after it in different ways. Some of us, we, we, you know, we have certain talents that we promote to, to experience this uh, recognition. Some of us, uh, we are wealthy. Some of us, we are very successful. Um, some of us, we are physically attractive. Some of us, uh, we just work really hard. Others of us, we have a really nice disposition. But in all these different ways, of course, we don't really realize we're doing this most of the time. But we're interacting in ways saying, recognize me, see me, I'm, I'm, see me and like me. It's this, this hunger for recognition, this hunger for glory <laughs> that is vain. Now, some of you may not relate uh, to that that, 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 that thirst for recognition. But you might relate to what Paul says in verse 4. Take a look at verse 4. Um, each of you should look not only to your own interests. So some of you here, you might say, honestly, I honestly don't really care what other people think of me. And you are being accurate. That, that might be true. You might walk into this room. It's like, I could kind of, I couldn't care less what the people in here, here think about me. But another thing to think about is, but am I walking into this room with a genuine concern for the interests of others? Or am I coming in just wanting to get my own interests 
served. I have certain desires that I want to see happen, and, and that's what I'm thinking about. I'm, I'm simply going after the things that I want in life, and I'm not really considering the larger picture of what does this person need, and what does this person need. I, may not, I might not desire recognition, but I'm kind of just going through life, and I'm trying to grab after the things that I think will bring happiness and joy, and, and I don't have a lot of room, a lot of space to consider the needs of others. Um, I've got three little girls so um, in the last couple of years, I've been able to be reintroduced to the old game, Hungry Hippos. You guys remember, remember Hungry Hippos, right? So you've got four hippo heads on this, in this little field, and then you put a limited amount of marbles in the middle, right? And you hit go, and you all just start grabbing for marbles. And uh, I usually win, but it's actually pretty close sometimes. Um, but I was like, you know, that, that is not a bad metaphor for life. Like, people are just going around, we're just trying to grab what we think will make for a, a satisfying life, and you know, that might be through possessions or through comforts or securities, or, oh, these things, and we're just, we're just kind of going after it. And the, the assumption is it's a zero-sum game, and so I'm trying to, trying to piece together a life that, that works for me. So whether it's this, this craving for recognition or just this pursuit of our own interests, Paul's actually saying, yeah, do nothing. <laughs> do nothing from that posture. You know that thirst for recognition? Yeah, don't, don't act out of that place. That, that need just to grab what you need. Yeah, don't, don't act from that place. And the reason, of course, is what he's saying is it, it's, it's not hard to see how those postures aren't conducive to unity, right? If you put a group of people in a room together who are all thirsty for recognition, who are all wanting in, in their various ways to be noticed, who are all after their, their needs. Well, it's not hard to see that that's not a place that's going to be conducive for unity. You're going to have instead competition. Um, you're going to have um, the sense of trying to keep up with one another and the jealousy that can come when other people are recognized, when they have more than us, the insecurities that can set in, the squabbles that can happen. That posture is not in any way conducive to unity. And so Paul is saying in, this, in this, this great passage, he's saying, you know, that need for recognition, that, that need just to pursue your own interests, yet that is not the life that God has for you. That's not the life that God has for you. And he invites us into a radically different posture, a radically different way of life. And you see it in verse 3. So let's turn to what is this posture that promotes unity? It's now secret. Let me read verse 3 again. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but what? In what? In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Of course, the posture is a posture of humility. Now, let me just say, biblically, what this word humility, the way I think the, the Bible would explain it, humility is, is simply a sober estimation of ourselves, um, that's grounded in reality. <laughs> that's a good way to say it. It's just a sober estimation of ourselves that is, that is grounded in reality. The reality of who God is and the reality of who we are in light of who God is. Um, you've probably heard the phrase, and I think it's a good phrase. Humility is not so much thinking less of yourself. Humility is just what? Thinking of yourself less. That's what I was going to say. Yeah. I had different answers to that in first service too. Um, 
Anyways, I had heard that phrase before. Um, Humility is not so much thinking less of yourself. It's just thinking of yourself less. Meaning, humility is not downplaying your strengths, you know, beating yourself up. I'm not really gifted. I'm not, I'm I'm nothing. No, humility, it's actually just living in reality. (laughs) And the reality is, in light of all these other people, in light of who God is, in light of what the world is, I'm actually really not that big of a deal. I'm kind of not that important in the grand scheme of things. That's just, that's just the reality of things. It's just ground in reality. Uh, humility was not a virtue that was prized in the first century Roman world that Paul was writing in. Okay? If you read about the Roman heroes of the day, humility is not like the first thing that comes to mind. And I would say 2,000 years later in our modern culture, humility is not something that is particularly celebrated. It's certainly not uh, rewarded, I would say, in our society today. And, and when some people think about losing, putting others ahead of themselves, or think about humility, it, it feels just like a losing game, right? Humility feels like losing that race. And biblically, the perspective is so radically different. Biblically, the perspective, no, humility is freedom, <laughs> Humility is the freedom of living in reality. It's, it's the freedom from that constant need for recognition. You know, that constant need for approval and recognition, that constant fear that your interests are not going to be uh, safeguarded and protected. Humility is actually to be freed from those things. It's the freedom of, of genuinely accepting yourself in all of your limitations. Uh, I think of it, humility is the freedom of the tyranny of the self. And any of you who struggle with this desire for recognition, this, this competitiveness to try to get ahead of others, um, you know what a tyrant the self can actually be. And what a, what a, a hard master the self, that, that drive for glory can be. And humility is freedom from that. I came across this, I think, great quote this week. I don't even know who wrote it. So forgive me for that. Um, But I love this. There can be no real happiness in the heart where self is enthroned. It's thinking about that that self that that longs for recognition and and vainglory. If you would have peace, you must seize that self. Bind it and never again let loose. For self is the cruelest tyrant, the deepest shadow, and the blackest blot that darkens life. Maybe a little extreme. Um, To be rid of the despot, you must begin by placing others first in all your thoughts and actions. See, that, that, that self is actually a tyrant. And humility is to be freed of that. To begin to consider the needs of others, as Paul says in verse 4. Right? Because in my selfishness, I'm so needy. I'm actually not freed to be present to you. To genuinely ask, what is it that you need? What, is, what are your interests in this? How can I actually step outside of this and, and just look at the two of us and go, each of these people has needs, but what's yours? See, I don't have that freedom until there's humility. Um, C.S. Lewis has some great thoughts on humility in, in a couple of his writings, but one in Mere Christianity. I, I love this. He, he's talking about a person who is genuinely humble, who simply doesn't think less of themselves. They just think of themselves less, and they're freed up to... Pay attention to others, to notice the needs of others. I love how he says it. Uh, Don't imagine that if you meet a really humble man, he will be what most people call humble nowadays. He will not be a sort of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you that, of course, he's a nobody. Uh, Smarmy, good word there. Uh, Probably all you will think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap 
who took a real interest in what you had to say to him. If you dislike him, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who seems to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. (laughs) He's describing a kind of freedom from the self that is a freedom to actually pay attention to others, to notice them. And Paul is saying that's the kind of posture that we need to promote humility, this freedom from that drive, freedom to be present to one another and to consider what we need, what, what each other needs, and to pursue that lovingly, humbly, sacrificially. So that is the call. Live lives of humility so that you can pursue unity together. And of course, Paul doesn't leave us there by just telling us what to do. Um, in this passage, he gives these great motivations for why we should live this way. And I want you to try to, if you take nothing else in this morning, I want you to try to take in the next five minutes of here's, here's the fuel that Paul gives. This is the fuel that should drive you to this life of humility and unity with one another. Uh, he has a motivation before those commands and he has a motivation after. So let's start with the motivation before. You see it in verse one. Um, I had never, I've read this passage so many times in my life. I normally just skip right over verse one. And this week I sat in verse one for a little bit and it was super encouraging. Let me read it to you. Uh, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, he's appealing to our common experience of the gospel. And he's saying, if it's, it's like a question, but it's really a rhetorical question. He's saying, you know, if you've had this, and of course I know that you have. And so he's encouraging them to draw back on their experience. He's essentially saying, haven't you experienced the goodness of God in your life? Have, have you not been encouraged by being united with Christ? He's saying to them, like, you're united with Jesus. The Lord of the universe has, has pledged himself to you for eternity. For better or for worse, he has died for you. You are, you are with him. Have you not received encouragement from that? Have you not received comfort from his love? Have you not experienced God's love in your life in a myriad of ways that brings you comfort? Have you not experienced the fellowship of the spirit, that his spirit is in, in, in your life and in each other's lives, and you share that in common? Um, if any tenderness and compassion, he's saying, consider all the ways that God has come alongside you and been gracious and loving to you. And hasn't that humbled you just a little bit? Hasn't the grace of God, hasn't that helped free you just a little bit from that vain pursuit for your own recognition and getting all your needs met? Hasn't it softened you a bit? Hasn't it made you humble and gracious and, and, uh, and grateful? And don't you then want to live out of that gratitude and that freedom with others? Doesn't that motivate you? Say, I want to extend that same grace and compassion and mercy to those around me. That's the fuel, he's saying, for this command towards unity. Is the gospel, hasn't it humbled you and left you just grateful? Hasn't it freed you just a little bit? And then, of course, the great motivation he gives is not at the beginning, but at the second half of this passage uh, in verse 5 through 11, the, the example of Jesus. And I, again, I spent a lot of time in December, so we won't spend much time. But let me just read it again and just comment very briefly. He says, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God 
did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, to cling to. But he made himself nothing. He took the very nature of a servant and was made in human likeness. And then, being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further and became obedient to death on a cross. He points us to the example of our Lord. He said, hey, Jesus, remember Jesus. That glory that we search and we, we crave, he had it before he became human. In heaven, he had all of that glory, all that recognition, that fame, that status, that privilege, the comforts, everything that the humans kind of clamor for, he had it all. And it literally says, and he emptied himself of all those expressions of glory. And he became a baby. He was born into obscurity, into poverty, into complete dependence on a human mother and father to take care of him. He, he let go of all those perks and privileges, emptied himself and became an ordinary human child. And then as, as a man, he further humbled himself and he was obedient to death on a cross. And on the cross, of course, he takes on himself the penalty for, for all of our brokenness, all of our sin, all the ways that, that that hunger for recognition and glory, all the ways that makes us do really bad things and makes us hurt one another. All of that he took on himself. He pays the penalty for that. So instead of having eternal separation from God, we can have an eternal life with God in communion with him. Of course, the cross, a cross is, is, is the opposite of glory. It is the most humiliating, most embarrassing, most shameful way a person can die, most exposing way for a human being to die. And so Jesus does this life of downward trajectory, motivated by his desire to obey his father and, of course, his desire to love and serve us. He is putting our interests ahead of his own interests. And Paul's point in saying that and giving us the example of Jesus is, of course, to say, now go and do likewise, right? Verse 5, your mind should be the same as that of Jesus Christ. His life should be the motivation for you, the fuel that encourages you to live the same life. And so he's saying to us, you've been so loved by your Lord. And live in that, live in that truth of, I have been so extravagantly loved and served by my Lord. I'm humbled by that. And I want to live that same kind of life, that life of humble service to others. That's what the Jesus life is all about. It's not just believing the story about Jesus. This is something Jesus did. No, when, when his life becomes my life, when his pattern and his thinking and his way of life becomes my way of life, that's what the Jesus life is. When I let go of my need for recognition to humbly serve others, just as he did for me. And what I love in this passage is, is this will be the last thing I say about the passage. I love that Paul doesn't end at verse 8. Right? He doesn't end at the cross, but he goes on to say what God did for Jesus in light of that life of humble service. Therefore, we're going to spend more time next week looking at these, these verses, but I'll just mention here. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. He goes down to humility, but his life ends back in glory, right? All of that the recognition, the worship, all of that. Of course, God gives him all that as a response to this selfless act. 
And there's so much theology packed into that. I don't have time to, to go after that. But, but what we can at least say is God in that decision is saying yes to Jesus' way of humble service and love for others. He is vindicating Jesus' way. He's vindicating Jesus himself. And he is saying, yes, this gets my hearty amen. This is the way that I want my people to live. And so as we follow Jesus, of course, we will not uh, ascend to where he is in the same way. But God, in, in the end, God's saying, this is the way of the universe. This is my way that in the end, humble love wins out in the end. It looks like a losing proposition in the world today. But in the end, this is the way of the universe. This is the way things will be. Humble yourself and God will exalt you one day in the end. He did that with Jesus. He will do it with us to a lesser extent, of course, than Jesus. So there it is. Very familiar passage. We're being invited to do this, to receive the extravagant love and grace and service to us, given to us by Jesus Christ, and then to live lives of humble, sacrificial service to one another so that we might together be unified, so that Jesus' prayer that they would be one would be fulfilled in us, however imperfectly, however in however many broken ways, but that we would grow into his prayer for us. So I want to encourage you just to consider you know, what, familiar stuff today, familiar territory, but wh- where do you need to hear this um, today? Maybe there's a particular context where you need to be reminded of this, the example of Jesus. Uh, maybe the church, maybe our church community is the, is the context. And I, I, you know, from my vantage point, I get to see so many great examples of this in our church today. So many people who, who are serving in ways that are totally unrecognized, just humble, mundane, just going about the work of, of faithful service, not needing the recognition. Um, some of you come in here and um, you're thinking, you're looking out for others. And as the service ends, you're not just thinking about yourselves, but you're thinking, gosh, who, who, needs, who needs just a, someone to listen to? Who needs someone to be with? Some of you are great prayers for this community where you regularly, you stop thinking about your own interests in prayer and you put others ahead of yourself in prayer. And you're praying for the needs of our communities. There's, there's so many ways that we can do this. But maybe this church context is a, is a context where you say, yeah, I, I, I want to I follow the Jesus way. Um, where do you need to hear this? Uh, marriage is a great place to hear this. Um, we don't think of this traditionally as a marriage text, but man, this is an amazing marriage text. Let me read uh, verse 3 and 4 to you one more time. In the context of marriage, you might want to plug your ears if you're married. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Wow, that's a great marriage text. So maybe for you, it's to just get, how can I humbly serve my spouse in this season of our marriage? A lot of tough marriages right now. All over the place, of course. Always lots of tough marriages. And, and one of the most common complaints, right, whether you're in, this, in a tough marriage right now or not, one of the most common complaints in a tough marriage is this. My needs are not getting met right now, right? That's the experience. And that very, very well may be true. And so what does it look like to take on a different posture? Man, how can I be a humble servant to my spouse? 
even when it feels like my needs are not getting met well. Uh, Those of you who are parents, um, maybe you need to just hear this. And maybe you need to hear this passage as as an encouragement to you. Those of you who are, you know, you're just in the grind of parenting. And um, you're trying to serve and, and put your kids interests ahead of your own. And it, it turns out that uh, parenting is a thankless task, if you didn't know that. Um, my kids always thank me for the things I do for them. But I know that some of your kids don't do that. Uh, and I know that parenting uh, can be just a daily grind where the world doesn't see your just faithful acts. And so maybe you need to hear, you know, God saying to you today, hey, I see. What you're doing, what the world won't see, what your kids don't even appreciate. I see it. And what you're, you are following the way of Jesus. And it is the way of the universe in the end. So continue, be encouraged with those faithful acts. So where do you need uh, to hear this this morning? So simple and yet so foundational to our faith.